Warning. This episode of Tales from the Trunk contains strong language. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniak's. On today's episode, we have a guest I'm very excited about, Alexandra Rowland, author of last year's absolutely wonderful, charming, delightful, can't-say-enough-good-things-about-it debut, A Conspiracy of Truths, which has a beautiful, snarky old man who I love to death, and a wonderful cinnamon roll. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I am... Uh, when I was putting this show together, I was, like, making a spreadsheet of all the people I thought I might eventually get on the show, <laughs> and, like, you and the rest of the serpents were right near the top of that list, and one day I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna ask them. Nice. What? What's the worst that can happen? Don't oh. self-reject. I mean, and, like, I fucking love podcasting. Sorry, can I swear yes. on this podcast? <laughs> yes, you can swear <laughs> on this wanted, podcast. I wanted to check. Yeah, but, like, like I, I have discussed, I had no idea that I really enjoyed even the audio production quality of it. Um, I had no idea that that was going to be something that I enjoyed so much. But, yeah, I'm having an amazing time with Be the Serpent, my other podcast. And I think you've seen that I just launched a second podcast as well, World Building for yes. Masochists. And that one is also equally fun. So, yeah, discovering new cool things to enjoy. It is wonderful. Podcasting is wonderful, and it feels like a golden age for science fiction and fantasy podcasting. Oh, for sure. I would be remiss to mention, although this episode will be airing in October, I would be remiss to mention Alexandra Rowland of the Hugo-nominated Be the Serpent podcast. So fancy! So fancy. So fancy, yes. Wow, October! Yeah, uh, so my my second book, Acquire of Lies, will be out by then. Please go buy it. It is the sequel to A Conspiracy of Truths, but you can read them in either order. Uh, And if you enjoyed the sweet, soft cinnamon roll from uh, the first book, then you'll be delighted to know that he takes center stage as the narrator of the second book. Yay! Yes. That's exciting. Yes. Woo! Well... I Alex, think that's you're... all of the self-promo that I have to do, really. It's <laughs> just, like, pack it into the, the first couple of minutes. Not a problem. Uh, we will mention all of those things again and put them in the show notes. Yep. So it'll all work out. Uh, Alex, you're going to be reading Windfall, is that correct? Yes. So uh, would you like me to, like, tell you a little bit about it? I would love to hear about this story. So Windfall is a YA steampunk book that was very near and dear to my heart. Two of the problems uh, that sort of led it to going into the trunk were that no one was buying steampunk at that time, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on the show. Uh, And the second problem was that it wasn't even quite YA. It was kind of like spanning the border between YA and adult, uh, Mm -hmm. just sort of in like a really awkward position. But uh, it has some really fun, vibrant characters that I enjoyed a lot. And I was thinking when you first asked me to to come on this podcast, I was like, oh shit, like what should I read? And I was thinking about like some of my juvenilia, like what would be least embarrassing to read. Mm-hmm. And I had kind of actually forgotten about this novel, <laughs> even though like I finished it and it was done and complete and whole. Right. <laughs> it had just sort of like gone out of my head. And then I thought of this, and as soon as I thought of this book, I immediately thought of this scene, which is possibly one of my favorite scenes in the show. Woo. Yes, so should I just... Oh, 
you need some backstory about the scene before yes. I jump right into what it. What should we what should we know about this before we dive in? All right. So, uh the characters in the scene, the two protagonist characters are Hiran and Azarola. They're both members of a airship crew and mm-hmm. they have run into their arch nemesis, Captain Makershid, in Ooh. a tavern somewhere. Doesn't matter where. Uh, She has some of her crew with her. They owe her a lot of money for a variety of reasons, one of which is that Azarola stole some stuff from her. Uh, (laughs) She very much wants to either get paid back, kill a bunch of people, or get Azarola to come with her on her crew. Because he is an exceptionally talented pilot. Fantastic. Kieran and Azarola have kind of a capital H history together, uh, both <laughs> in the romantic sense and also, well, not so much romantic sense, more of a punching each other, but also kissing each other. Um, <laughs> I don't think it would quite make it to romantic. They're like enemies to enemies with benefits, <laughs> uh, <laughs> rather than enemies to lovers. Uh, Hirin is a top-shelf navigator as well, and when he and Azarola are not fighting like cats and dogs, they are mm-hmm. an amazing team, and they work really well together. The problem is just getting them to a place where they will tolerate each other and cooperate with each other. Yes. Uh, so in this scene, uh, they are in this tavern, they are trying to get out of this mess that they're in. And Azarola has had the brilliant idea that, quote-unquote, brilliant idea, that uh, they could gamble their way out of it uh, to, right. escape with their, to escape with their skins intact. <clears throat> Listen, you have to do this. It's against my conscience, and it is my personal conviction that this is, in fact, a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea, and we have to, Azarola hissed, sidling closer to him. She's not interested in negotiating. She's either going to take enough of our money to crush us out of the sky, or she'll take it in blood. You heard what she said. We got too close. I was saying the whole fucking time that we ought to stay the hell away from Van Diemen's Land. And I say we were 200 miles away. More than enough. Maybe you made a mistake. I made no mistakes. I do not make mistakes, Hiran snarled. As for that business in dues, I was irreproachably accurate. I am appalled that they would call my honor into question with such an egregious lie. Well, that's not really a lie. I stole some stuff. Not the point. (laughs) No, stop, listen. I've heard enough, Hiran said, who had turned away sharply, only stopped by Azarola grabbing his arm. Good luck. Azarola refused to be shaken loose. Valentine, he said in a low voice, listen, we have to. Hiran turned back, eyes cold. He fixed his eyes on Azarola's hand. Azarola took it away, slowly. And if you dig us deeper into this pit? I have a plan, he said quietly. I always have a plan. And, yeah, digging it deeper is a sure thing, unless you help me beat them stupid instead. He held Hiran's gaze for several long moments. Valentine, I'm only going to say this once. Please. Hiran looked straight back into Azarola's eyes and called him the most scathingly vile name Azarola had ever heard from his lips. <laughs> well, it was at least in the top five, and it rocked him back onto his heels. Well, he said a moment later, good. Always nice to have a friend at your back. Take your valuables off. We'll send them back to the ship, Hiran said, already unbuckling the wireless telegraph bracer from his arm. Hey, Azarola said quietly, doing the same with his own. Like enough, we're going to lose a lot of money. 
and we're probably going to get within kissin' distance of Lady Death, because I'm not planning on letting them hold me hostage. Thought I'd tell you that if I've got to betray you to escape with my skin, I'm most likely gonna. I just wanted to say that you're way more of a vicious motherfucker than I ever gave you credit for. Now embrace me! Hiran <laughs> shoved him away as he moved in. Jump off a fucking cliff! Four Fox is a game played by, as one might assume, four people. Although certain sadistic souls have adapted the rules for an eight-player version called Flock Fox. Azarola had, at one point, also attempted to persuade the crew into trying out an abomination he was calling 14 Fox Fortune, but it had been immediately apparent that such a clusterfuck would have allowed Azarola to walk away from the chaos, after the dust settled, owning every penny on the ship, if not indeed the ship itself. <laughs> in Four Fox, the players, in two teams, have a deck of cards each. For each hand, every player deals out two cards to the other three, resulting in beginning hands of six cards apiece. What follows is a complicated tapestry of card trades, swaps, deals, draws, and discards, all four players cheating as grossly as it is possible to cheat while collecting cards into complex sets. No speaking is allowed at a four fox table, so any communication between partners has to be completely silent. Many lesser players devise a system of codes or signals, but it is considered crude, and the codes often become better tells for their opponents than they are for the partners. Hiran and Azarola were a wickedly good Four Fox team. Unfortunately, so were Song Shunfen and Captain Makershid. Hiran and Azarola began strong. They played the Grapevine, the Hen House, a solid pair of Iron Gate, all smooth and flawless, and they were three cards and a lucky trade away from completing a gambit called Digging Coal when Makershid and Song pulled Flock of Geese and Bite the Moon out of thin air, one right after another. It was then that Azarola remembered that they were in trouble. He'd gotten cocky after the snappy little second Iron Gate they'd played. Makershid had coldly kept any kind of reaction off her face, and that had seemed like a giant tell itself. He'd had the presumption to think she was upset. The big problem was Hiran. There was no one, no one Azarola knew who was better at bluffing. Hiran's face had the same unwavering expression 99% of the time anyway, even when he was sleeping. He had a face like the sheer wall of a cliff. It was a cliff Azarola had spent a lot of time staring at. Hiran was giving him plenty to work with. Azarola could tell what Hiran had in his hand with a mere single blink. There was no one who could bluff like Hiran, and he had a truly evil brain for remembering the steps for obscure, tricky gambits and for seeing patterns. He would have been unstoppable if only he would cheat. It was only because of that evil brain that they were still in the figurative frying pan. Hiran could find something to do, some reasonable play to make, no matter his hand. But he didn't have any kind of unnatural luck, and he refused categorically to cheat. Even when three other people around him were cheating scandalously, perhaps then especially so, it was half the point of the game, and he dug in his heels about it like he was being asked to shoot his childhood pony in the head for dog food. Song and Makershid were excellent Four Fox players, but you could tell that they weren't usually partners for it. If Hiran would only cheat, they could take these bastards for all they were worth. Azarola had a thrill up his spine at the thought, but it would never happen. Hiran wouldn't do it for the sake of the ship. He probably wouldn't even do it to literally save his own skin. The tide turned. Azarola only took his eyes off Hiran's face to glance at his hand, and he stepped back off the offensive and began simply feeding Hiran all the cards he could, and Hiran played with systematic brilliance, flinging out stupidly clever gambits that no one bothered using, the king's hand and copper pennies and through the brambles. But Makershid was ruthless and unmerciful. 
copper pennies was swept away by the five-pointed star, the king's hand was crushed by the duke's black horse. Mackershed laid out two bite-the-moons, and Song showed a master hand, tame the fox. All but impossible. Song's sleight of hand to line that up. She was good. Very good. Azarola saw Hiran's eyes fall on the tame the fox. They'd lost, unless they came up with something else to wager. Hiran sighed, or what passed for a sigh in Hiran's language of nothing at all, and laid out <laughs> turtle doves twice in sixes and fours. A paltry hand. Azarola had given him much better cards than that. He should have had enough for a road to Marrakesh, at least. Hiran folded the rest of his cards and looked at Makershid. Song threw the remainder of her hand on the table with a triumphant whoop. An evil grin lurked just around the edges of Makershid's mouth, barely suppressed. Azarola fanned out his hand and stared at the cards. "'Game's over,' Song said, slouching back in her chair and flinging an arm over the back. "'How much do they owe us now?' "'Double and a half, Kretzmer rasped. "'Thirty-five hundred pounds. No hope now.' Makershid <laughs> began turning over all her cards to reconstruct a complete, coherent deck. And now we'll be speaking to Captain Tennyson. My greatest thanks to you gentlemen for a very exciting game, and I do hope you know that I'll respect you in the morning. <laughs> Azarola slowly put down his cards. A hand of trash. He raised his eyes and let Hiran's accusing glare slam into him. The thing was, he didn't feel any kind of personal responsibility for the situation. He'd tried to fix it, and it hadn't worked. What else was he supposed to do? What was the difference between owing Makershid Samarkandi fourteen hundred pounds and thirty-five hundred? They were over a barrel, and Makershid was going to fuck them raw, no matter how many thousands they owed her. It was the open displeasure on Hiran's face that did it. Azarola had seen him angry before, but it had always been hidden behind the wall of the cliff. You could only really tell if you'd learned to see through stone. Now the man was looking at him like the only thing standing between him and murdering Azarola with his bare hands was the table, and perhaps the table could be used to club him into submission first. <laughs> Azarola wished he were at leisure to study the fascinating scowl lines Hiran had on his face from that expression. Azarola had never seen any of them before. He hadn't even known they existed. Hello, he thought at them with a cheery little mental wave. Funnily, he seemed to care that Hiran was pissed off. Hiran caring about the money still didn't make Azarola care about it, or about avoiding causing any fresh new hells for Tennyson, but it did inspire a certain inclination to at least try something else. What a strange feeling. Azarola smiled and yawned and smiled again. Oh, let's have another hand. I'm sure our luck will change again. <laughs> Makershid put her hand to her mouth and laughed. Her laugh sounded half like sobbing, though her eyes sparkled with incredulous merriment. Thirty-five hundred's not enough. You'll wager again. No, thank you, Heron said, standing and giving Makershid a neat little bow that was polite, but not as polite as it could have been. Sit down, we'll play one more hand. No, we won't, said Heron. Double or nothing, said Makershid. Nothing, or I go with you, Azarola countered. Makershid jerked her head back. What? Her expression changed from shock to almost girlish delight, quick as mercury. Really? Hiran sat back down slowly. Upon my honor, such as it is, Azarola vowed, fresh decks all round and drinks on you. Aye, that wager enough is caused to hoist glass in my book. As she snapped her fingers and ordered her lackeys to fetch more drinks, Azarola smirked and looked at Hiran, whose expression was now as impassive as the leading face of the Great Wall of China. Hiran had his eyes fixed on the wall by Azarola's shoulder. Four new decks were brought to the table with a new bottle of wine. 
Makershid took a long draught from her wooden cup and licked her upper lip. Any last words before the game, gentlemen? Azarola tried again to get here and to meet his eyes, but he was looking down into his wine cup with mild distaste. Silence begins now, Makershid said, setting her cup on the table with a thump. She began to shuffle her deck, bridges and riffles and swift successions of cuts. The gold bangles on her wrists jingled softly. Azarola and Song took their decks too, and did the same. Hiran was the last to begin, and he went slowly, moving with less of the flash of Song and Makershid. Azarola watched with his peripheral vision. The decks were passed clockwise. The hand was dealt. Hiran had the grace to tear his attention from the wall that had been so fucking intriguing and look properly at Azarola, albeit begrudgingly. The game went swift as a swallow's flight. Azarola's stomach nodded tighter and tighter. The whole time, Hiran kept passing him more goddamn sevens than there were whores in Covent Garden. There weren't many patterns that sevens were good for. Perhaps this was some kind of revenge. Perhaps Hiran wanted to be rid of him. In the next trade, Hiran passed him his thirteenth seven and flicked his eyes up to Azarola's. Azarola's heart stopped in his chest even as his hand automatically went to the deck to draw. His face didn't move. He was sure. He drew three cards instead of two. His fourteenth seven, a five, the queen of spades. Fourteen sevens and a black queen, a lesser queen of heaven, one of the highest tricks there were. He laid it out. There was a pause. Makershid and Song automatically glanced at their hands for a potential pattern to counter it. But Hiran wrapped his knuckles once on the tabletop and started laying down cards too, and Azarola didn't bother keeping the grin off his face. Four kings, <laughs> three more queens, four jacks, and the last two sevens there were in the four decks. Unless Hiran had suddenly started cheating. Sixteen <laughs> sevens and four of each face card, and now they had a full kingdom of heaven. Azarola tossed the rest of his hand on the table, refilled his cup with wine, and downed it in a single draft. They were home free. His heart was pounding in his chest. There was nothing, absolutely nothing half so thrilling as brushing up with danger, getting that close, and then dancing out of its jaws just as they began to snap closed. And how they had danced. Azarola would be telling this story to generations of rigging rats to come. He lowered his cup. Song and Makershid were laying down cards. For a moment, Azarola didn't understand why they'd bother to display a pattern when they'd just lost. Makershid slammed the last card of her hand on the table and smacked it with her open palm. What? Azarola said dumbly. The earth and everything that's in it. We win. There was no higher pattern and no counter. It was the only play higher than the kingdom of heaven. A heartbeat passed. All four of them leaped up from their chairs and drew steel. Whew. Mercy. It's good, right? <laughs> That's fun. Oh, I love a I I I love a good steampunk. I love a good uh we're going to get out of this by doing something stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to be more stupid and get in more trouble and some yes. cool world building with the the card game. I I just wanted to start shouting when you were going through the card game cuz I was like I mean, how much fun you must have had coming up with the names for all the different tricks. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. It was one of my favorite parts of the book. And, like, this is such a cool scene because the tension between the characters is so immediately evident. Um, mm -hmm. There were, when I was writing this book, there were a couple times where I would go to a new writing group, you know, like where you have like a writer's critique group and like they're strangers right. and you've never met them. So you need to do like a show of dominance so that, <laughs> 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 oh, 
Um, or maybe this is just me. Uh, to like show what your position in the pecking order is. Because usually mm-hmm. they're all like kind of not great writers. Usually one of them is like writing a memoir. Uh, they don't actually know how craft works. And so you got to like show them who's boss, you know? And so yeah, this you is... you got to flex on them a little you bit. you got to flex on them, right. Uh, and so, like, this is the, the scene that I would take to those to those writing meetups uh, with people to, to flex on them a little bit, because it's a good one. Yeah. No, it's a good flex. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm totally not, like, and doing a dominance a display on your podcast or anything. <laughs> <laughs> here we have a Slytherin and a Hufflepuff. Yep. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, so we were getting into it a little bit beforehand, but there's quite a bit of backstory behind this book. I wanted to know if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I started telling you uh, the story, and then I realized that um, this story would be better later in the episode, i.e. now, uh, and started <laughs> over and made you edit out that part so that I would sound very smart, and then I called myself out on air. Because uh, <laughs> that's how professionals do. Uh, so I wrote this book. Um, I started writing this book for NaNoWriMo 2008 when I was in college. And I finished it in 2015 and was editing it from like summer of 2015 to summer of 2016, roughly. And then I started querying it. And I mm-hmm. sent it out to three agents and all of them rejected me. Uh, because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, this was summer of 2016, and or rather September of 2016 was when I started uh, querying. Mm-hmm. And no one was really buying steampunk anymore. Like, that ship had sailed. Uh, yes, or that airship. That airship had, had sailed. sailed. That's exactly even. what I was about to correct myself to. Yes, that airship had sailed. I think for good and ill, you know, it was a fun time, but steampunk had, as a subgenre, had some problematic elements, and I'm not sure that we ever really fully interrogated them, i.e. colonialism, imperialism, etc. Yes. And if I were ever going to, like, go back to this novel and rewrite it, I think that I would do more of that interrogation, but mm-hmm. eh. Um, so the cool story uh, about this is that this book actually helped me sell a conspiracy of truths because uh, I queried the third agent uh, who was Dong Wan Song, uh, Mm -hmm. who was representing a friend of mine. And so sort of mutual connection. I got an introduction. I had some questions for him before I I pitched to him. Uh, And then I I sent him this book and he was like, oh, this sounds really cool. You know, you've got a, a really strong voice, but steampunk isn't really selling right now. And then he said the fateful words, are you working on anything else? And I said, well, I finished a book literally a week ago. And if you'd like, I can I can pitch you that. Um, mm-hmm. And he was like, sure, go ahead. So I pitched him a conspiracy of truths, which at that point was just called Chant because I'm real bad at titles. And oh, big y- mood. Yeah. <laughs> and he was delighted with it. And... That the story of like how I actually ended up signing with Dong Wan is a whole nother longer story that we don't have time for on this podcast right now. But long story short, because I queried him with Windfall, I got representation for conspiracy, sold conspiracy, and here we are today. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's the sort of story I love hearing and having 
friends represented by Dongwan, it's exactly, like, exactly the sort of thing I've heard from them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, like, he has a really great uh, stable of authors right now. I actually have a new agent. Um, I got a new agent a couple months ago, uh, just because, like, like, Dongwan is a fantastic, fantastic agent, but we just weren't quite, like, the right fit for each other. And that's something that mm-hmm. is totally, like, normal and natural to discover, especially after a couple years. Just, like, with friends, sometimes you your visions kind of grow apart a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but he's a fantastic agent, and I would really recommend him to, to anyone. I feel like I had a point at the beginning of that. <laughs> I forget what it was. Ask me another question! Yes. You mentioned that you started this book in NaNoWriMo. It is now October, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, NaNoWriMo is right around the corner. I also wanted to say, bold of you to start a novel for NaNoWriMo in college. Well, I had been doing NaNoWriMo since 2004. Okay. So fair. at this point, for more than half my life, I think last year, yeah, last year was the year that it officially was like half my life that I had been doing NaNoWriMo. And it was like so much a a tradition at that point. And it has always been and still is like I still do NaNoWriMo every year. I've never missed a year. Please. Mm -hmm. No. (laughs) Like even when I was when I was in college, I would always I wouldn't always win, but I would always get at least a few thousand words out of it. Yeah. Uh, enough to, to say, like, oh, yeah, I participated in, in NaNoWriMo this year. Um, usually I was clocking in at least, like, 20,000 words or so. That's um, extremely respectable. Yeah, yeah. And really, like, a- any words that you get during NaNoWriMo mean that you're a winner, because those are words that you didn't have before. And that's what mm-hmm. I always tell people who are like, oh, you know, I can't write that fast. Um, it's like, well, yeah, but you get access to this cool, fun community, and, like, all words are good words, even if you don't meet the arbitrarily imposed uh, goal word count. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every year since since 2004. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, um, NaNoWriMo is something, my personal history with it is I knew about it for years, Mm -hmm. I knew people who attempted it in college and were very successful. I actually have a friend living in Massachusetts who won, I think won NaNo every single year he was in college with me and is like a conlanger and oh my god uh, can i have his phone number <laughs> yes <laughs> i'll hook you guys up <laughs> and is is in an irish language class with rick riordan currently cool very which cool which is banana pants give me his phone number <laughs> yes <laughs> but i always looked at it as like oh geez i'm in a creative writing program I don't think I can do a novel on top of everything else I'm doing. Mm. And so the year after college, uh, which would have been 2011, I had started writing a novel that summer and decided, you know what, I'm going to finish it for NaNoWriMo. And boy, did I not. Yep. (laughs) That's a mood, too. Yeah. I've definitely gotten faster, both at NaNoWriMo and at writing novels in general. My first one, I also have a book that is sort of my redheaded stepchild. It's uh, technically my first novel uh, that I published in 20, self-published in 2012. And that began life also as an NaNoWriMo novel in 2005. And it took me until 2012 to finish it. So seven years. And that's a bunch of time. Yeah, yeah. And like, as time has gone on, I've gotten faster at writing books. 
Choir of Lies uh, took me six months, I think. Not count, less than that. So I started, I drafted the outline in October. In mm-hmm. sep- no, sorry, I drafted the outline in September, started writing it kind of in October, wrote the shit out of it during NaNoWriMo. I knocked out 100,000 words uh, that year on NaNoWriMo for the first time. And let it rest in December, did a whirlwind edit of it in January, and got it on my editor's desk just in time for the deadline in February. It was actually supposed to be on February 1st, and I got it on her desk like February 8th, so like one week late, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. definitely have gotten much, much faster. Yeah, that is, uh, (laughs) that's quite a feat. Thank you. So I, I, you know, this is... This is the first NaNoWriMo of this podcast's existence, and I've been listening to Be the Serpent for about a year at this point, and one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on for this episode was, y'all are prolific NaNoWriMoers, and so I just, I wanted to have somebody on who could say smarter things about NaNoWriMo than I can. I absolutely agree with you on the point of, you know, NaNoWriMo or not, of any words you make are a win. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's also, like, having the community is such a huge thing for me. Just, like, knowing that there are other people who are also going through this process is, Mm -hmm. is so, so big. And I think that that's something that's important, not just for the active drafting process, but also just for the writing life in general, you know? Like... It's such a lonely job. You're sitting alone in a room by yourself. And that sounds yep. like like a good introverted time when you first start out with it. <laughs> but if you have a career, especially, you need a community. You need friends. You need people who are going through either the same or similar kinds of things as you, who can commiserate or offer advice or just like listen to you vent about it. And... It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Here, I'm handing you a mm-hmm. community. Uh, NaNoWriMo is great for that. Uh, for me personally, I also just realized this like within the last couple years. And probably it's because I've been doing NaNoWriMo since I was 14. So like it has warped my kind of process and, and ways of looking at the world. But right. the endorphin rush of getting to enter a number on a spreadsheet and see the little bar graph go up is <laughs> something that is not to be discounted. It is a joy that is not to be just dismissed because it does so much to show you that there is progress that you're making, even when you're in the middle of the horrible sloggy middle and it feels like you're never going to get through it. And the mm-hmm. end of this book will never come. As long as you keep having the proof in front of your eyes that um, you're making progress and you're chipping away at it slowly, um, that's a huge, huge motivator. Yeah. And I think the third point is just like NaNoWriMo has this cultural thing. This kind of ties back into community as well. But this cultural phenomenon of giving you permission to be messy and bad and to like just sort of hack the words together however Mm -hmm. uh just to get the raw material sort of out even if it's sort of bad and gross uh and i have a hard time doing that in the rest of the year you know i will often like stop and edit and like slowly carefully craft a sentence and like slog through a scene but with NaNoWriMo like I don't know why I can only do this during November, but 
it is just so much easier to turn the rest of my brain off. And then I have been doing like upwards of, let's see, I have had the goal of doing 100,000 words, I think for the last five years. And Mm -hmm. I forget which year, I'm going to look up my NaNoWriMo stats right now, actually. (laughs) A legit thing to do. Yeah. Just as long as we're chatting about it. Just so I can yeah. like, continue flexing on your podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've, I listeners of this show will know that I have repeatedly pulled up the submissions grinder to be like, I've been submitting for 13 years now. Yes. Yeah, so 2014 was the first year that I aimed for 100,000 and didn't make it that year. Didn't mm-hmm. make it in 2015. Didn't make it in 2016. All of these years, like ever since 2014, I have been like chasing that 100K. Didn't make it in 2016. Or did I? No, I didn't make it in 2016 because, and here is why, um, the election happened in 2016. And if you look at my bar graph on the NaNoWriMo website for that year, I am doing the 3,333 words per day that it would take to get me to that. And I'm right on par and I'm right on par. And then election day happens and it's just a flat plateau for the rest of the month. Yeah. There are, there are some, there's some shit that happened that year. There was, there was. It was a rough, rough time. Rough for everybody. still a rough time. Rough for everybody. Yeah. 2017 was the uh, first year that I hit the 100,000. And that was with Choir of Lies, and also, so one of my methods for doing this is that I always have two projects for NaNoWriMo. I have, like, a primary Mm -hmm. one that I'm working on, uh, but if I hit a snag with that one, then I'll switch over to the other project and just keep writing words. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Uh, and that really, really helps. So that one was Choir of Lies, November 2017 was Choir of Lies, and the, a novel, or a novella that I am uh, working on right now. Fantastic. That's a, um... I I can't remember, I think it's Brandon Sanderson mentioned on Writing Excuses at one point, uh, because we're just going to drop every writing podcast Mm -hmm. name on here. Uh, Our opinions are correct. Reading glasses, uh, can't think of any more off the top of my head, but I know there are. Anyway, uh, said on Writing Excuses at one point, like when he gets stuck on his novels, which like, I don't know how he does what he does, but... You know, He's a fast guy. It works for him. Yeah. Uh, that he'll just like go and write really shitty song lyrics, or you know, do something else that exercises a different part of his brain that's still writing yeah. and is like keeping the practice going. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a really great strategy. Um, that you know, maybe some year I'll I'll adopt. I definitely agree about the entering numbers into a spreadsheet and seeing a graph go up. Yeah, yeah, that is very, very good. Uh, And also just having people around who are willing to do, like, writing sprints with you um, Mm -hmm. is super helpful as well, both from a just, like, practical getting words out perspective, but also, again, from that community building kind of perspective. Yeah. 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 And uh, the community is really, that. that's basically where I showed up why I really showed up for NaNoWriMo that first year in 2011 was like, I'm going to try to get through this. And in the meantime, I can also like hang out in, I basically hung out in one thread on the forums Mm -hmm. for the entirety of November. Uh, There was a Linux thread. Oh, nice. That was the only place I I spent time pretty much that November. I also run Linux. Nice. (laughs) 
I did not know that, and it pleases me greatly. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, the the having having that community there, whether it's through the forum or like I I know a lot of it happens. I keep on seeing. I think because you keep on adding to it. There's that thread on Tumblr about things I didn't learn about writing, about what it is to be a writer, that there's a lot of community mm. and a lot of things happen on Twitter. Oh, yeah. And there's all this stuff that you, like, I did not learn any of that in school in my four-year creative writing program. I have opinions about creative writing programs in college. Can I, like, angry rant? Yes. Okay, so here's my... Here is Alex's Fun Facts Opinions Corner. Um, <laughs> we get a corner on this You get a corner. Podcast? Yeah, you Amazing. get an Alex's Fun Facts Corner on this podcast. Um, it's For any of you who don't listen to Be the Servant, this is a thing that I occasionally do on my other podcast. Um, yes. Very exclusive and rare. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> so I did not major in creative writing because I knew at the time that it was bullshit. I am so sorry. I don't mean to say that you're bullshit for getting one. Like you're... I don't take any offense. Like, if you choose to do that, it's valid. It's like the program itself that is bullshit. And it could be very much less bullshit if academics were less like that. Part of it is just the kind of academic approach to literature and the kind i mean there's like the ivory tower kind of aspect of it where like oh yes mm -hmm. like i can publish one paper in 10 years and still be considered relevant um <laughs> and like in any kind of having a job as a writer situation that's not how it works uh right. <laughs> creative writing programs could be doing so so much more to teach students how this shit actually works in mm -hmm. I did not personally take a creative writing full degree. Uh, my degree was in English with a focus in world literature, folklore, and mythology, uh, which might explain a lot about myself and my writing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a lot of friends who were in the creative writing program, and I took several individual creative writing classes during time in, uh, my time in college. And uh, my uh, senior seminar was also the creative writing senior seminar. Senior seminar at my college was, I went to Truman State University in Missouri. And it's this sort of thing that you have to take in your last year, mm -hmm. usually in your last semester. And during this course, you are having much more of a round table kind of discussion with the professor and the other students in the class. And mm -hmm. also you're working on a quote unquote capstone project, which is like a, a mini dissertation. Basically right. it's, preparing you to work to do grad school kind of work right like your professor is your academic advisor and like you're working on this big project and then you have to present it in front of a crowd at the end of the semester uh read your work aloud do a powerpoint presentation if that's relevant etc cetera, etc cetera. uh mm -hmm. so i was doing the creative writing themed uh senior seminar and my professor monica fucking baron curse her was <laughs> a huge bitch the whole time. She had a really strong prejudice against uh, genre writing, fantasy and science fiction and horror, 
and mm-hmm. she like she asked me what is what is your novel about what are you planning on writing about and i like pitched her a whole plot to this fantasy novel that i wanted to work on which by the right. way was sort of the ancient predecessor of a conspiracy of truths this class nice. was where i started first building the world for it so i told her the plot to to this novel uh about this this book and these people called chance and what they did and being storytellers and so forth she was like okay but like what is it about like it has to have a theme and I'm like, I don't know what the theme is. I haven't written the book yet. She's like, you can't write a book without knowing what the theme is. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you can. Uh, <laughs> so she sent me and the other three uh, genre writers in the class and made us sit at the back of the room. Like literally, what? yeah, exiled us to the back of the room and like didn't look at us or pay attention to us or offer us any advice. And so we just sat around like critiquing each other's work and giving each other shitty feedback and trying to flex on each other. And everyone but me was failing at flexing because everyone else was writing like bullshit about like a supernatural library. And there's this man who is a writer and he lives in a literal garret. And there's a manic (laughs) pixie dream girl who works at the library and he's in love with her. And I'm like, this is bullshit. Do you see why this is bullshit? Anyway, point. Well, I'm getting very distracted. I'm sorry for this very long rant. I hope it's entertaining. Um, it is good. Good. Uh, so the point of this was that at no point in my college career, during the senior seminar or any point before that, did a professor say the words "query letter" to me. Mm-hmm. In my my last semester, a good friend of mine, Joshua. And I started a group for people who were, quote unquote, pre-professional writers, people who had aspirations towards a career, who wanted to know how the business of writing worked and Mm -hmm. who wanted to like sit down and and talk about these things seriously and get the kind of information that we were not getting from our teachers. And so like eight people showed up to the first meeting, not counting Josh and myself. Uh, And Josh and I were were standing at the front of the room and we started talking about like 201 level kind of conversations about like royalty percentages and like how self-publishing would work and like the the pros and cons of self-publishing versus traditional publishing, etc. And literary agents and one person in the back of the room raised their hand and they were like so what is a literary agent and we were like oh yeah they're sweet summer child right so we explained to them what a a literary agent was and like we got to like the part where we said the words query letter and she raised her hands again she's like sorry what's a query letter and we were like oh okay 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 then we need to like back up several miles and start from ground zero um Mm -hmm. fortunately josh and i had already been doing our research on our own because we were kind of you know obsessive like that and Mm -hmm. so it became me and josh explaining how the publishing industry worked to several 22 year olds who had no idea how the publishing industry worked and were about to graduate with degrees in writing and no way of surviving in the real world and like using their skills to get a career Mm-hmm. And this is something that super back to get back to the main point where, where this all started. This is something that really pisses me off about creative writing programs because they don't teach you actually any practical skills for using what you know and like mm-hmm. how to get published, how to get a job as a literary agent or as an editor or what a copy editor is for any of that stuff. There's nothing of the business of writing. It's just mm-hmm. like you can just write things on paper and we won't actually teach you anything about craft of writing because every creative writing class I ended up in was 
pretty much just exclusively, okay, break up into critique groups and critique each other's work. We don't actually know how to teach you creative writing. Like, there was no Mm -hmm. talk of the figures of rhetoric, which would have been super useful for me, or plot structure, or anything else like that. It's bad. It's a bad situation. End of rant. Yes. (laughs) Having been in both rather poor creative writing classes in my degree, and since you put a teacher on blast, I will throw some glitter on an absolute gem of a teacher, Lockie Hunter, who was an adjunct professor at my college, Warren Wilson College, Mm -hmm. and my first semester taking a class with her, it was... I think there were four of us in the class plus her and we did like a week of just how do critiques work before we even started critiquing Mm -hmm. and she was genre agnostic and taught us about the submissions grinder and was like a working writer who also wanted to teach. Man, you fucking won the lottery there, didn't you? So I will, I will say for people who haven't heard of Warren Wilson College, which is everybody. Yeah. That Warren Wilson does also have an MFA in creative writing that has given degrees to the likes of Fran Wilde mm. and also uh, what's his face, the Joker who was in Spider-Man one, James Franco. Okay, yeah. all right. I have no f- like memory for faces, and so I was at the MFA residency at the same time as him. Uh, my senior year as an undergrad, and asked him about the weather. Cool, cool. Well, Fred and... Wilde is cool people. Yes. <laughs> uh, and everyone else was like, what did you talk to that celebrity about? And I said, the snow. He was a celebrity? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, yes, I absolutely agree that... I, I also had the great benefit, my turn to flex again, of my dad is a copy editor... And proofreader, Mm -hmm. he worked for several genre magazines back in the day, like in the 80s. Cool. And like the first time I submitted a story to Weird Tales magazine, the, at the time, lead editor called me. Called me and told me all the things that were wrong with my story and said, please fix these things and try again. Oh, you got a phone call. I got a phone call. That's adorable. And not even to the phone number I had put on my To your dad's number. To my dad's phone wow. number because he knew it because they were pals. That's hilarious. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I went into college as a pre-professional writer. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of like Thinking knew... I was hot shit. Right. Well, I mean, you kind of were hot shit, though. I mean, like, we were all idiots yes. in college and like knowing anything about anything kind of did make you hot shit, though. Why, thank you. Yeah. Like just objectively, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. not to not to flex too much. But there's been so much flexing on this episode already. My God, <laughs> it's fantastic. Just like ripping out of our sleeves with all the flexing. Yeah. <laughs> Impressive because I am wearing a tank top. Um, yeah, you came out with your sleeve. You came with your guns out, man. <laughs> cool. Cool, cool. I don't remember where we were before we went into the corner. Um, I don't remember where we were either. You were mentioning something about cre- being in a creative writing program. I'm sure there was something. Were there any there other questions that you wanted to ask me or any other like cool rants that you could send me out? Probably not right now because we are getting like towards the end of the episode, <laughs> even though you've got some stuff to edit out. Yes. Um, well, I, I will just 
make a plug in general that I'm, I know you will back up for. If you want to do this professionally or if you want to do this non-professionally, mm-hmm. find a community. Absolutely. There are amazing... Go on Twitter. Find authors who are on Twitter. There are so many authors on Twitter yeah. and a lot of them are happy to talk to you. Although, like... I would really say NaNoWriMo is the place to do it because I have made so many friends from NaNoWriMo because, you know, those are the people who are kind of at the same level that you're at um, and who Mm -hmm. are also actively looking for a community and who are also actively writing and who aren't going to be really fussy and pretentious about their writing either because they're willing to set aside quality and standards to just, like, have Mm -hmm. fun and experiment and, like throw shit at the yeah. wall and see what sticks. So they're like... Murder people with a shovel. Murder people with a shovel and just like, yeah, uh, experiment freely and and joyfully. And like, those are the kinds of friends you want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The NaNoWriMo forums yeah. are a great spot. Twitter is a great spot. Tumblr can be a great spot. Like, the internet can be terrible and toxic. But also pretty cool. Yeah. 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 I know that there are a lot of really awesome, amazing, passionate people on the Be the Serpent Discord. There are, yes. The Discord is up over like 400 people now, which is terrifying and weird somehow. But also amazing. Also amazing, yeah. Like, I don't know how this happened. Like, we just started a podcast because we wanted to yell about robot boners, man. (laughs) And here we are with the 400 fans and a Hugo nomination. Okay. All right. (laughs) Sounds fake, but okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I was just thinking I am I basically know you because I know Macy, one of the other serpents, mm-hmm. through a Slack that is just writers. And where we published a steampunk anthology just to bring it completely full circle. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, it does. That is good. Yeah. Good job. Sky's like, of doing Wonder, Sky's theme. of Danger. You can buy it for your e-reader right now. Very good. I've heard it's great. Yes. Macy was very proud of it. It's super good. Yep. It's super fun. If if you see me and you have the paper copy, I will write in it for you. Anytime, any place. Amazing. Listeners, just get at me. Also get at me next time you see yes. me in public, which will probably not be for a while because this is now October and we will be heading into not con season. Uh, I will be hibernating in my room, but yes. sometime next year in 2020, holy shit, how is it already 2020? Um, time is fake. Time is weird and fake. Yes, like if you see me at a con, please do come up and say hello. Uh, and just to plug my own work again, please go buy A Conspiracy of Truths and A Choir of Lies. They're both really cool novels about fake news and tulip mania and the power of stories, both as a destructive force and as a constructive and healing force. And, uh, they're real gay. Real queer. Just real super queer all the time. So good. So I did want to, uh, before we sign off, there is one dot point here that I really want you to talk about. Because... You have lots of good things to say about first-person narrators and how reliable or not they should be. Yes, so speaking of my books, because my books are also in first-person, so I have big feelings about uh, first-person narration. All first-person narrators should be unreliable on some vector. Just as sort of a little piece of advice for writers in general. And this is because all humans are unreliable. Mm -hmm. No one has a perfectly objective view of their own experiences. We are all biased in some way. Uh, We are all 
filtering the world through our own personal lens. So even if it's something as simple as uh, that bank robber, what color shirt was he wearing? Uh, One person Mm -hmm. might say turquoise and one person might say just blue and or they might not have noticed. Right. Or they might lie, right? Like, there's another level mm-hmm. of unreliable. Uh, so, but it's not just about lying. It's about, like, when you are writing a first-person narrator, you need to give them big opinions, and you need to let them have um, sort of strong feelings about what is going on in the world around them. And that is a form of unreliability as well. So just, like, bear that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, we are not going to do our normal time travel segment because we've basically already covered it, which is... If you are a baby writer, if you self-classify as a baby writer or would like to self-classify as a baby writer, find a community. They're real good. Yep, they are. Find people who are like you. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Yes, absolutely. Alex, do you want to tell listeners where they can find you elsewhere in the world? Sure. Uh, I am on Twitter as at underscore Alex Rowland. That's A-L-E-X R-O-W-L-A-N-D. I am on Tumblr as Ariaste, A-R-I-A-S-T-E. And I am on just the internet in general at my website, www.alexandraroland.net. Fantastic. And uh, listeners, if you are into Good Omens, my guess is that in October, Alex will still be reblogging every single Good Omens post. That is correct. I will remain on my bullshit. Yep. We do stand. <laughs> cool. Alex, thank you again so, so much for being on the show. Of course. It's been really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been really, really yeah. fun. And I had such a good time revisiting this novel that I haven't thought about in years and years. So, yay. I'm, I'm so glad to have been able to give you that opportunity. Uh, listeners, join us next month uh, on November the something, right around... Thanksgiving time, whenever that is. Listeners, join us again in November when we will have Primu Muhammad on to talk about a lot of cool stuff. Good times. Till next time. Bye. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.